Welcome to episode two. My name's Graham Twine, and today on the podcast, we're going to be with Mr. Jack Wilson Stone, a very cool cat from B13. He knows all things bees and all things honey. If you missed the first podcast, it was about Suncoast Fresh. Check that out, episode one. Let's roll with episode two. Welcome, Jack. So we're going to time it. We're on. We're on. We're on. I feel like I'm taking anything from Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> we just did. Yeah, yeah. That's we're live. Wild. Jack, be one third. What does that mean? Uh, one third of our global food supply is dependent on bee pollination. Wow. Which is uh, where it all started in food production, food security. And uh, bees just so happened to be a great talking point seven years ago when I started keeping bees. And so just quickly, and we'll go over, but you supply honey to lots of cool restaurants and shops and stuff all through Queensland or New South Wales. Would that yeah, be right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So what made you start seven years ago? It was purely an interest in trying to become more connected with my, my food. I grew up uh, eating a diversity of foods, great foods, bad foods, fast foods, easy foods, delicious foods yep. and uh, when I when I was 18 I traveled overseas for the first time out of school and I did four years essentially traveling I arrived back in Australia at the age of 21 and there it was it was kind of sitting right under my nose from from the the last 12 months of traveling abroad I'd, I'd been able to work on farms and experience what it was like to to propagate seeds and plant food and pick food and harvest and sell food at markets yeah as part of this experience on these farms that i was working on and came back to australia wanting to teach my friends and family and, and network about how awesome this experience is to grow food so when i first met you and someone pointed you across the room and said that guy deals in racks so I was like, what, what kind of racks is this guy dealing? And uh, honey racks going to all the best places in town. I was like, whoa, where to get to know this guy? Because we get asked for racks all the time. Like, they're super popular in all the hotels and they put them on their thing. They're like, man, there's a big demand for what you're doing. Now, is that cool? Are we using too much honey? You know, what's going on? Are we, how, do we, how do we look after the bees? Are we, should we be using all the honey? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just to make it clear, I'm not a rack dealer. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a honey producer. Um, but let's make that clear from the outset. The, you know, ultimately, we need to be using more honey. We're not using enough honey here in Australia as it stands. It's, it's still a very, very much a pantry product. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a niche, um, niche industry. It's still classified as a cottage industry with a growing uh, kind of annual capita of, of how much the industry is is contributing to either export or import or um, the production of food. But we are becoming more popular as an industry and honey is becoming more popular as, as a valuable product um, to the general consumer, which is really, really important and benefiting us all, I think. So you've got honey hives all around Brisbane and Gold Coast. Where are some of the strange spots you got it? Well, I mean, we started off putting beehives on rooftops. My first ever beehive was was placed on top of the james street precinct above the wow. restaurant bucci bucci restaurant oh, really so they yeah. were the first bucci uh bucci and gerard's bar oh, and okay. sorry gerard's bistro were the yeah. first two restaurants to have hives on their roof and that was a that was a pilot project that the james street initiative um, the marketing people that james at the james street precinct allowed us to to utilize their rooftop and test whether this urban beekeeping model was actually going to be a viable was thing. that is that like a thing that we're doing in new york first or did we beat the world to that or we no i mean We've been doing it in Australia since 2009. There's other cities in Australia that have been doing it uh, their way. And I started in 2012. But, you know, it's been it's been going on for 30 or 40 years on the rooftops of Paris. These really low-lying uh, metropolitan cities that don't have skyscrapers and, and, and large amounts of, of concrete. They've got parklands. They've got diversity in their cities. So the model was already proven mm. long ago. Yeah. Uh, and we have just modernised it and brought it to the forefront of of the conversation. So, um, if I wanted to put one on my my restaurant, like, do I harvest it myself, or you know, do I ring you and go, "Hey, I want honey for my restaurant. I've got some trees and flowers and stuff around. 
you know, what are we to... Well, the beauty with bees is bees can really be positioned anywhere. You don't need a specific area for bees, like you say, need the specific uh, conditions to grow citrus or to okay. grow uh, any form of, you know, uh, uh, herbs and, and and small forageable plants on. On a rooftop, we can place bees in a backyard, on a, on a vacant balcony. We just need to find space that is easily accessible for the beekeeper to go in and manage that hive on a fortnightly basis, but also uh, an area where the bees are going to be content year round. As the seasons change, as the sun lowers throughout winter, we need to make sure that the bees are always um, uh, getting what they need. And, and what bees need is sunlight. They need atmospheric and direct sunlight for the first part of the day, the first half of the day. And they need access to water, fresh water sources, because they drink about a litre of water per hive per day in the height of summer. Wow. And that's a, they, they use the water inside the hive to, um, to drink, but also to mix with the fresh nectar coming in from flowers. Uh, and also to, they use it as an air conditioning uh, resource inside the hive. So they, they put the, the water um, from their local water source into their stomach and then they regurgitate it and fan that water at the front door of their hive and that creates an air conditioning circulation system that circulates hot air out of the hive so nothing's ever stagnant or, so 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 you so you get the box the wooden box yeah wooden box with the racks in it and you and you that goes on the roof and then you bring say a small amount of bees is that how it works yeah so we usually start off with a, a production ready colony so we will breed up a colony of bees from uh, a small nucleus hive which is a queen 5000 bees uh, and some resources, so food. Yeah. And, and then we sit them on a good crop for six weeks. We build up the numbers. We let the queen become comfortable in the box. We, we allow her to lay out and grow the nest in terms of the population, how many eggs she's laying. We're monitoring, as beekeepers, we're monitoring how much protein, mineral, amino acid, fatty acids, carbohydrates are being stored in the hive. And th those things all come from flowers. So yeah. we have to have good resources in the flowers that we're putting our bees on to build strong colonies. When that colony is production ready, it's a full box of bees, also known as a single box of bees. We then take that up in its lightest state onto the rooftop. We install it in the hives, the empty hives on the rooftop. And then we that, that rooftop becomes the permanent home for the next yeah. foreseeable future, uh, whether it's a, a year, two years, a decade, that becomes that static location for those bees um, to, to live and and to, to be rewarded, hopefully, from the environment around them. So do you harvest the honey for restaurants or can they do their own sort mm -hmm. of harvesting? Look, we're super flexible. At the end of the day, all we want to do is try and connect our end consumer, i.e. the restaurant and the consumer, with their product. So if we've got a desire from a, a restaurant that really wants to, to service and maintain their own hives, we usually try and pick three or four people to train up over the course of a number of months. And then we are always there on site to check the hives with the chefs with the maitre d', with the front of house, yeah. whoever's in charge of it, with the head chef. Uh, but usually we manage the whole process. We, we install, maintain, manage, harvest, bottle and deliver. So we manage the full closed loop system. Um, and, and that means that we can control the whole system because there's a lot that goes into harvesting just a drop of honey. Yeah. We have all these byproducts associated with it, all of these risks associated with it. You've got to be doing it in the right environment. You've got to be using the right equipment. You've got to be uh, treating honey differently to say how you just you know cut a pack choy out of the ground and wash yeah. it and, and deliver it to market yeah. it's, it's very different so it's not something you'd you'd recommend people do at home or would you like is that something that happens look if i i guess i'm a little bit known for deterring people from getting into bees yeah. in their backyards rather than encouraging them to do that yeah uh, but what we don't need is every single person to have a beehive in their backyard what we yeah. need is each block each neighborhood to have a set hub where the yeah. community can come together and there's a leader within that community who is leading the education, the yeah. harvesting, yeah. the main maintenance around the hives. But if you have a beehive in every single backyard, mate, we're too busy as it is to even walk our dogs on a daily basis, yeah. Yeah. let alone check a beehive with 40,000 stinging bees, yeah. 50 kilos of honey on top. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we've got this ecosystem that is upset at us when we've opened it on the wrong day, the clouds are over, there's a storm coming and we just get peppered, the dog gets peppered, the neighbours get peppered. All of a sudden right. we've got issues yeah. beyond, you know, <laughs> just, oh, I've got to get into the hive. Kind of yeah, thing. right. Um, so it's just not, yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea, manage manage well. But. Yeah, manage well and, and when, you've, when you've got a, a, a local plot, uh, 
to put bees as a community, yeah. you can actually fit more on the plot as yeah. opposed to one beehive in a backyard. Mm. You can fit four or six or 12 beehives on a vacant plot of land, a local park. You can work with your local council to try and install these pollination hubs to create pollination pathways, which is a big part of what we want to do here in southeast Queensland, wow. is to open up gr- within the green belts of southeast Queensland, uh, position our bees within those green belts so we can create a reliable pollination pathway. Yeah. Um, do you think, um, is, there, is there a fair bit of education going on in schools about bees and the importance of them? Like, like are, are the numbers going up in Australia or down in Australia? The numbers of bees, the number of bee keepers is going up in Australia. The number of bee hives in Australia is also on the increase as well. But what we're seeing is uh, uh, the older generation from the commercial side of beekeeping, which is anywhere between 300 or 400 hives all the way up to 5,000 hives, 10,000, 15,000 hives as part of an operation. Um, We're seeing the older generation die out unfortunately move on yeah. uh, retire sell out and then the younger generation coming in with a little bit more of a an articulated mindset so to speak they're going uh oh, 5000 hives a little bit you know that's not manageable mm. so we're going to drop back to to 1500 hives or we're going to drop back to 600 hives where we can manage with a small tight team and that's our business model as well is we want a small tight team managing our hives really well for maximum output so do you have to, like, is there a course you can do? Like, if I want to be a beekeeper, can, how do I, you know, is that a thing? Unfortunately, there's only one registered training organisation in Australia that offers beekeeping Cert 3. Yeah. Uh, up, oh, that was actually up until last year. Uh, there's a, that was in Western Australia, I think, so totally inaccessible to anyone to learn about bees. Uh, there's, there's a place in New South Wales called TOCAL, which is the agricultural uh, primary industries education hub and center and they've got an amazing resource of all the way from books through to um, on-site beekeeping officers that come out and teach you how to keep your bees obviously for a price but you can take part in certificate three beekeeping courses where you can learn everything from uh, 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 basic beekeeping techniques all the way through to commercial level uh, systems procedures requirements Um, uh, so if you are thinking of going down that path then you can get the adequate adequate training. It is accessible, but usually beekeepers learn off each other. That's yeah, how the okay. that's how the industry works. So what's um so if there are people looking for you, what's the best way to find you? Like is it B one third on Instagram? Or? Yeah, B double E O N E T H I R D. That's B one third dot com or dot com dot au. And I mean across all the platforms, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Yeah. So if people want to do Google. that, they can ask you how to do that. So back onto the honey. Now, how often, like, what is the season for honey? Is, it, is there a couple of different seasons for it? Is it like a, a stone fruit that's good in a certain time of year? Well, I mean, the beauty of bees is that they, they produce a product dependent on the environment in which they're placed. Right. So here in the city, we take a prime example of what we do and how we're able to read the seasons. We harvest every three months. We try to harvest every three months. So we show a representation of the past season. We'll, we will harvest regularly in a regular season we'll harvest in august and that will be a representation of what winter and late autumn was then we will harvest again in late november for the christmas season which will be a representation of spring you know end of summer end of autumn usually at the end of autumn it's a very light harvest because we want to leave as much honey in case the winter is really dry yeah uh, and there's not a lot of food for the bees to collect so we're always leaving you know 30 40 50 percent of the food that the bees have collected and we're taking 50 60 70 percent depending on what's in flower at the time but the seasonality of the product essentially comes down to the flower that's in flower, the crop that's in flower. Um, and beekeepers uh, are skipping from one crop to the next crop to the next crop to the next crop all the time. Yeah. So whether to say that, uh, I mean, flowers flower at the same time of year, mostly every year. Yeah. It's just a matter of whether the beekeeper is there to capture the nectar, to capture the crop. But there's definitely a seasonality. But it's a year-round thing. Beekeepers can operate 24-7, 365 days a year. It does sound like there's a there's a ton that goes into it. If you're measuring like the proteins and everything goes into it, like to manage one hive sounds like a lot of work. Well, I mean, manage ten hives and you're literally managing a ton of yeah. work. There's yeah. there's a ton of byproduct to come from ten hives if you manage them well. If you manage ten hives well, you can get a ton of honey out of that. If you manage thirty hives poorly, you'll struggle to get a ton. Wow. So it's all about your input, your knowledge, your understanding of what's going on inside the hive and being able to read the nest, the bee nest, 
as a book, as a piece of literature, always learning new pieces of language, always learning different ways and new ways that bees are communicating with you. Tell me about the hive. There's one woman, the boss, the queen. She the boss? Yeah, yeah, you could say and she's the all boss. All the others are blokes. All the others are female. Oh, yep. The so they're, females the, they're the daughters of the oh, queen. Oh, okay. Well, I thought they were blokes. Yeah, and one so, percent of the hive is blokes. Oh, okay. So, and they've all got different jobs. There's different jobs. So we'll start with the lowest class, the men. Oh. They are essentially put here on earth as part of the colony in times of prosperous in prosperous times when things are looking good, usually in spring and summer, and they're used essentially to inseminate virgin queens from other hives, to spread their genetics from their hive. Right. So they're spreading their queens, their mother's genetics, and their father's genetics uh, within a five-kilometre radius with virgin queen bees that are flying out in the area looking to be mated with. Then you look at the sisters, the 99 percentile inside the hive, the European worker bee, or the worker bee, whatever class of, or species of bee she is. The worker bee is the, the main bee that essentially uh, does 100% of the work, whether it's from the cleaning and maintenance of the hive all the way through to the nursing and feeding, the caretaking of the queen, the maintenance of the eggs, making sure that every single egg that that queen lays is well-fed with the right amount of minerals, nutrients, carbohydrates, um, uh, enzymes, so that bee, that egg, will eventually hatch into a fully functioning, uh, um, no disease bee. Is that like a regular thing? Are they hatching every day or do they hatch like a seasonal So a queen will well? lay up to about 2,500 eggs in a day during her peak season. She'll live for up to four years but be in her peak or prime from month three to six through to month 12 to 18. And they have like another one on the way. They've got like a hey. They a will choose. They will choose to replace her, but they won't ever have a virgin princess running around the hive in a European bee colony. Our native Australian bees are different. They do have virgin princesses running around in case they choose to split the colony, replace the queen, whatever happens. Queen gets damaged or hurt or whatever might happen to the queen. But she's a really important resource in a European beehive. If the queen gets injured, hurt, malfunctions, isn't performing to the way that the 99 percentile of the colony believes that she should be performing she is then superseded or replaced what do they do with her they take one of her eggs often and they will pick up one of her eggs that she's laid uh, anywhere between one day and three days old so she's laid an egg in a cell she's moved on to the next thing uh, uh, the worker bees will come and remove that egg and place it in what's known as a queen cup at a certain in a certain part of the beehive on a certain position on the rack the individual rack yeah. in, the, in the beehive we know we know them as frames so they will then position that that egg in a queen cup and they will feed that egg uh, a, a a mixture of high density high concentrate enzyme amino acid fatty acid mineral nutrient protein as well as carbohydrate they feed it royal jelly which is this super dense probiotic packed energy food that they secrete through glands yeah um, on their body um, and they will actually formulate a queen inside the hive that will, after 16 days, uh, hatch out as a live virgin queen. That queen will then become the dominant pheromone or energy in the hive, and the worker bees will uh, either kick, remove, or kill that uh, the, the the ultimate the, the mother queen yeah. essentially out, and the virgin queen will replace. But they won't just create one virgin queen; they'll create three or four because the possibility of that virgin queen being picked up by a bird, being caught in a spider's web, being nabbed by a goanna, yeah. whatever it is. I mean, we've got so many predators in the bee world that we don't often realize. Is it true if I get stung that the bee dies? Y yes, and I think that's a from what I understand, it's particular with. That's a particular uh, uh, result or cause and effect of human skin. So bees, the bee's stinger is barbed. So when it goes into the sting, into the skin rather, and it, and it tries to get away, so it stings you and it tries to escape, uh, that stinger then pulls out from its body and it's actually attached to some vital organs uh, inside of its, its lower abdomen. Mm. In between its organs and the stinger itself is a venom sac, and that is where the venom is stored. And if you look, if you take your time, you, you realize that you've been stung, if you've been stung, and you look at the venom sac, it's actually pumping through that barbed stinger straight into your skin and into your bloodstream. And that's where we get the swelling and the inflammation. But the, 
that the bee then will fly away, ripping out its lower intestinal organs, and then it will die within you know, five or 10 or 15 minutes. Wow, well, that's good. So my tip is if you're going to get stung by a bee, crush the bee before it crushes you and itself. So yeah, the okay. bee's better off to die by being squashed than you getting stung and possibly having an anaphylactic allergic reaction. Yeah, because that's pretty common, eh? Yeah, the, the allergic reaction in terms of swelling and inflammation is pretty common. Uh, anaphylaxis. Uh, I've met maybe two people in seven years of beekeeping who are anaphylactically. Okay. Like, so what do you do? What do you do with bee sting? Like, what, what's... You scrape it out. Yeah, okay. you don't pinch it out because you'll squeeze the toxin through the the um, the, the barb stinger into your body. You get a, a, a sharp object, object like a knife or your fingernail, and you scrape the barb out. So you, so you cross cut the it. skin. Yeah, you cross the skin. You cut. Oh, okay. Chop the barb off. Good to know. That's Good to very know. handy. Yep. And, and if bees are following you and you feel as though bees are harassing you, just put your head inside your shirt so you can see down the bottom of your shirt and walk away. Because bees are focused on your face. They're focused on your joints, like your wrists, your elbows, your hands, your fingers, high movement joints, high, fric high friction joints, your ankles and your knees. They're going to go for your face first, if anything, because that's the hottest part of your body. Wow. It's that's... where your engine room is, essentially. So in a, in a days of life of a bee, it might be some different jobs for them, but they get in there, uh, most, do they all fly out or do some stay home and look after the maintenance and others fly out and get on the flowers? So a worker bee will live up to six weeks in its peak season. So now spring, summer, autumn, they will live for six weeks. And oh. throughout winter, they'll live up to 12 to 15 weeks because they lower their vibration. In summer and spring and autumn, or spring, summer and autumn, they are constantly working from sunrise to sunset literally before the sun comes up there are the first bees leaving because first thing in the morning morning the, the the nectar in the flower is the freshest because the tree has been able to energize itself and push that nectar out through the flower to produce fresh succulent high concentrated nectar and high concentrated pollen so the earlier the bees are out finding that fresh nectar the sooner they can come back with messages of possible reward to the hive to then communicate it to all the other foraging bees. To answer your question though, about 25% of the hive of the, of the female worker bees, they are foraging bees and 75% are actually in hive bees. Uh, there's many roles that uh, a bee will go through in her life and it doesn't start off as a foraging bee, it ends as a foraging bee. So she will spend two weeks of her life out of her six week life foraging in flowers and collecting nectar. The other four weeks of her life, she's actually in the hive. She, she emerges from her cell um, after 21 days pupating in a closed cell inside the hive, and she will scratch herself out of the cell. She will then emerge into the hive, but she's got weak muscles. Her digestive system hasn't quite, well, hasn't even started. She's been trapped in this cell for 21 days and building herself as a bee. So she emerges. She's got to spend the next four weeks actually building her muscles, building an understanding and a knowledge for how the structure of the internal ecosystem inside the hive works, how the respect and order inside the hive works, who gets what before they get it as a young bee. So the young bees are always fed last, so to speak. Mm. Um, but you've got to work your way up through the ranks to then be promoted to the foraging bee. And it's the older bees. This is an amazing thing about how nature's figured this out. The older bees are the ones that are sent out. One, because they've got strong wing, wings. They know the process inside the hive. They've learned it. They have already mapped over the course of the past four weeks of their life the local area through taking test flights mm -hmm. in and out of the hive. So they know it. They get it. Yeah. They're, they're, the, they're the fighter jet pilots. They're at the top of their game. Awesome. Um, they, they then, though, are at the, at the highest risk of being nabbed. Yeah. being eaten, being killed, being stopped in their tracks. In there in a flower, a bird, a, a bee eater bird just comes down or a magpie comes down and just chomps that bee out of the flower. It happens all the time. It's just a little sweet protein snack for any other mammal, um, any other, you know, any other insect that's, or, or sorry, spider, bird, mammal, anything that's, that's searching for a sweet snack. So they've got some sort of sensor thing that gets them back to the hive. They've sort of done some test flights. Now, what about the ones that they move around, say they want to pollinate some almonds in Victoria. I've heard that, I think I saw on some show like Landline or something, they take them from like Queensland yep. on a truck all the way down yep. there. And how, do they have to stop somewhere, 
before the sun comes up or how does that work do you know yeah so so beekeepers won't drive during the day they'll mostly only drive during the night so when they stop during the day if they're driving from say let's say uh you know gladstone to victoria they're driving down to almonds they've got a thousand hives on the back of the truck or 500 this time and 500 in a week's time they will take two days to do so and they'll usually try and find a really cool spot on the side of the road uh, or they'll have somewhere yeah. booked in where the hive can can be uh, uh, less exposed to stress and heat and overheating. A bee colony is 35 degrees internally and when you put 500 beehives on a truck, you can imagine the core temperature right at the centre of that is well beyond 35 degrees. It builds, builds very high and, and bees cook at about 44.5 to 45 degrees Celsius. They cook, they're dead, they're done. Wow. So you've got to be very careful transporting hives long distances. Beekeepers will throw a net over their bee, bee truck to hold the bees in because when it comes to sunrise, bees want to fly naturally. So they're driving eight hours through the night, they stop, they wait, they water their bees to cool them down. They try and get some breeze onto them to cool the internal temperature down to, to that 35 or, or 33 degrees. And then they drive once the sun goes down again, but it's just too hot to drive during the day. So that journey for a big beekeeper down south is is long, it's arduous, it's testing, and it's all, 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 all to kind of help us grow our food. So there's huge risks that go into that. So we're moving bees around because there's not enough down there, like there's not enough around the arms, or there's too many almonds, or is it just because of massive big farms that need? Almonds are 100% dependent on bee pollination. So without a bee, we wouldn't be able to produce an almond There's nut. a lot of food like that, yeah. There is 140 fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Uh, are dependent on bees and I'd say anywhere upwards of about 70 of those are fully dependent or at least 75 to 100% dependent on bees. So someone's going to ask and they're going to say, can't we just do it ourselves? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, for the first time recently, hand pollinated a pumpkin and I saw immediate results. I, found, I saw the female flower, I saw the male flower, I got an earbud and I took the pollen from one flower and, you know, and, and made love with my earbud yeah. with the pollen over it to the female you flower. Made. And I meant it, you know, I really meant it. I mated, I mated with meaning. Uh, and it was within a couple of days that I saw this pumpkin come to life. And I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. So it's growing, growing, growing. I'm watering, it's growing in size, the leaves are beautiful. And I started to see the plants slightly die off a little bit, like leaves start to fall, only male flowers appearing with pollen and no female flowers appearing with ovaries. And I'm thinking, well, I can't make any more fruits and vegetables if I don't have the male and female flower. So that's the role of a bee is to collect the pollen from the male or the female and transfer it over to the opposite sex, transfer that pollen over. And that's how the pollination system works. Bees do this innately. That is their job. They know that. They, they don't want to do anything else except for transfer pollen and nectar from one flower to another. Mainly not nectar, but they're mainly transferring pollen. Uh, they, for us to do that would be... You know, it's just not possible. We're looking at we're looking at uh, such huge man hours and systems and processes and machines to do this for us. To produce a single almond nut, you need to know what flowers you're visiting, and a bee can read what flowers she's visiting. She can read what just from hovering over a flower. She can smell, see how much pollen, smell how much nectar's in that flower see whether it's attractive to her and then make the decision to ground herself on that flower. And there's 50,000 flowers on a single tree and you're looking mm. at almond groves that have got 150,000 trees in them. Mm. I mean, they need to put eight beehives every 200 metres in, in, uh, in an almond orchard. Wow. So we're talking eight beehives, 50,000 bees, 40,000 bees per beehive. We're talking huge numbers of pollinators in a really tightly packed, dense area of forageable land. So it would be impossible for us to, to hand pollinate so, or so to rely on other pollinators. This sounds like a crisis. Is it a crisis? Uh, look, when it comes to uh, it being a global bee crisis, we're definitely up against some huge challenges as an industry and, and, and as a, uh, for the insect itself. The, the biggest challenges are um, uh, loss of habitat for these insects to naturally live. Um, we're, we're up against the overuse of chemical pesticides, uh, food growing chemicals that allow us to have a clean crop at the end of the day, but that is induced with chemical 
you know, uh, DNA, so to speak. That's the result, is we're eating chemical-filled food. Uh, the bees are pollinating those flowers that have chemicals in their vascular system, in the plant's vascular system. The bees visit that nectar, take that chemical-rich pollen back to their hives, feed it to their young, and you get mass die-off. So agriculture is a huge part of the issue when it comes to keeping bees because so if they safe. spray that I mean the bee doesn't know they're sprayed on do they usually say we'll take macadamias for example macadamias flower in August September till late September usually a six to ten week flowering cycle depending on the age of the tree so beekeeper will take their their bees in more mature trees are better for beekeepers because they last longer so beekeepers will take their their, their their bees into young trees they'll pollinate for the first six weeks the flower will start to die off and then the, the farmer will say i'm like looking at the weather looking at the soil looking at the flower i'm spraying next tuesday you've got four days to get your 400 beehives out so a beekeeper needs to come in shift their bees find another suitable spot to put their bees so they don't start starving in their next position mm. it needs to be more than 10k away because a bee will fly five kilometers and come back into the five kilometer range that she was currently just in, in the macadamia orchard and possibly fly back to where she thought her hive yeah, was. Yeah. And then a beekeeper has got to then manage that macadamia honey and then hope that on their hives where they've shifted them to and from, uh, and then hope that there's another food source for the bee to live. And then the farmer will stray, uh, will spray. Mm. And ultimately, when that spraying happens, you just hope to God that there's no other insects in the area that are that are exposed to that spray because that spray is hard, heavy, and, and, and deadly. Wow. And that's, that's the same for all agricultural crops. We spray, I mean, I'm not against conventional farming by any means. I, I try to eat as, as spray-free as possible and as organic as possible, but that also has its issues. The, the, the main thing is, is just understanding what you're eating is really important and that what you're eating from the supermarket shelves is more than likely doused to get a good product, doused with chemicals or grown on chemicals. It comes back to that the ugly fruit thing, doesn't it? Where, you know, it's not always, if it's, it doesn't have to look pretty. I think we're always chasing stuff that looks amazing, but, um, well, okay. Well, that's uh, pretty serious, but so we haven't got enough bees. We need more bees. Yeah. Um, that's sort of happening through you. We've contributed quite a lot over the last seven years. To an, in an urban landscape, yes. Yep. But you know, the true contributors and the true heroes of, of this story are the people who are out there breeding lots of beehives yep. and going out and actually providing these services as a professional service. Uh, often, say for, for almonds, for example, beekeepers are paid you know, X amount per hive. I think the last standing plus GST was 175 per hive. So if you've got a thousand hives, that's a $200,000 pay packet yeah. that you can rely on when this season in particular, there's no honey available. We're in a honey and is drought. that because of the drought? Yeah. Big time, yeah, but it's not because of the drought that we know over the past three months. Humans have a great way of forgetting the past yeah. and only remembering the present and the, and the, and the nearby past. The, the issue is, is six to 12 months ago, we had very little rain. Six to 12 months ago, we didn't get the rain that we required to embed itself in the soil for the trees to soak it up to then produce something when the tree normally produces something in spring. Mm. So over winter, no rain. Past autumn, no rain. No rain over six to nine months and you get spring when everything's trying to burst at the seams and trying to produce a flower and the bees are expecting that flower but the tree's going into panic mode. Mm. The tree goes, hang on a second. I don't have the resources or the power to do what I'm born to do. So I'm just going to hold back this season. Or I'm going to hold back for another month, just another month, just another month. Mm. And then you get a late flowering that is out of season for the tree. So then it's too hot. So then the flower burns. So you get two weeks of flowering, two weeks of food for the bee, as opposed to a normal six to eight week when that tree is meant to flower for. So you get a shortened window of food availability, which is the situation that we're in now. We had no food from uh, halfway through June to uh, midway through October. So wow. beekeepers have to be really careful about how much food they're taking off, but also as in how much honey they're harvesting because it's, yeah. the, it's the bees' food at the, at the beginning of the day. Yeah. Or at the end of the day, rather. So um, what other products? So how does the wax happen, man? How, how does bee wax Well, the happen? byproducts. So there's... Four main byproducts in a beehive. There's honey, there's beeswax, there's propolis, and there is bee pollen. So bee pollen and honey are the, the uh, all thanks to flowers, yeah. I guess. 
beeswax is a byproduct that is um, that is essentially ingested. So, so bees go out and collect nectar from flowers. That's their carbohydrate source. They collect pollen from the flower. That's their protein and mineral source. So two different food groups. Just like humans, they need a diversity of food groups. They need good proteins and minerals and they need good carbohydrates mm. to provide them. They can't just have one type of everything, steak and chips. It's just not going to work. Yeah. You get a, a, a colony that's depleted in in its in its um, in its uh, you know gut biome, internal diversity. You need a diversity of foods to be healthy. The bees go out and collect the nectar from the flower. They bring it back, and before they do anything, before they store anything away in the honeycomb in the wax, they have to build the wax. So they swallow the nectar. They then ingest it, they secrete it through glands, wax glands on their abdomen, on the back of their body, right down near the stinger, near their tail. And they've got these little hairy parts underneath, close to their stinger, that actually just just push out little tiny sheaths of wax. And they then take their hands and their arms and they, and they, they, they craft the wax into honeycomb structures and then they store the honey, the surplus nectar inside the honeycomb cell. They build all of that by, by, by hand from scratch. Wow. Um, and, and the beeswax then is, you know, is, is continually being built to store more and more and more and more food inside the hive. And then we as beekeepers, when we harvest the honey, we take a very small amount of wax uh, from the top layer of the honeycomb. So when we do that, so what about when we take the whole rack? Do we just leave a few there so that they could keep going? Or? No. So the only way that you can give anything back to the bees if you have a full rack of honeycomb is if you were to spin it out and right. actually just get the honey from the internal shelving structure okay, of yeah, the honeycomb. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's actually a good thing to talk about as well. So when you take it back, you you put it in these spinners, I Yeah. So when we take the honey off the hive, we take it back with no bees inside the boxes. We take the honey racks back to the factory. Everything's numbered and ordered and and, and from its location and and time of of harvest. So we have an exact date and location of where that honey was created for records and also for for marketing. We then uh, uncap the honeycomb frames where we take a small layer of beeswax off, a small layer of honey off the the top of the frame and the capping of beeswax that the bees put on the honeycomb is actually a way to mach- to, to store away and to, to, to keep that yeah. honey stored away without any outside bacteria like or things getting emergency supply or something? Totally, but, emergency yeah. supply. And that, and that will last for millennia, that yeah. honeycomb, if it's stored in the right conditions. We bring it back, we uncap it, we um, put it into an extractor, we centrifugally extract it and then we're left with honey, bits of wax, that we then clean that honey, filter it, and then bottle it. And that wax then gets thrown in as dry wax into a big 44-gallon drum at the halfway through the season or when the time is right, when we've got enough wax, we then render that wax down in a big pot of water. And then we take the we filter off that wax into large 10 kilo blocks. And is that so, so you sell the wax as well? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So we, we produce about 170 kilos of wax a year at the moment. And what do you do? Like, what do people do with that? They use it for furniture? You can sell it on the open market, yeah. uh, which doesn't render you a very good price, or you can do things with it. So you can mm. make it into lip balms, skin salves, skin yeah. creams, soaps. It's yeah. used in candle making. Has this been happening? Because, you know, I read somewhere where they found some honey in a pyramid. Is this like Yeah, stuff in the Egyptian been... tombs. Yeah, yeah. Two and a half, three thousand years old. Yeah. Yep. So honey is a great way, actually. If you leave a lid, the lid off of your honey jar on the kitchen bench and you leave it there for the next 10 years, it's kind of like a McDonald's burger. It's going to stay <laughs> as it is. You know, it's going to actually protect itself. Yeah, right. So this is the beautiful contrast of man-made, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, like, man-made uh, food versus nature, natural food and nature's food. Man-made food will, will stay alive for 10 or 20 years in a paper bag tucked away in the in the, the shed and the burger will still look the same. So yeah. it won't taste the same. But honey, you leave the lid off and honey will naturally protect itself by forming a layer of hydrogen peroxide. So it actually puts a layer of hydrogen, natural hydrogen peroxide on top of itself to protect it from any in, incoming bacterias or yeasts or, or or kind of things that can get in there and start to ferment and eat that sugar. So what is creamed honey? Creamed honey is essentially a liquid honey that has been seeded with a finely particled creamy honey. Some honeys, all honeys are different. Some honeys will naturally harden faster than other honeys. Some honeys won't harden for a decade. Mm. They'll always be liquid and loose. And this comes down to the... the um, the glucose versus fructose within the honey. Mm. 
that's why some honeys are actually better for, say, clover honey is great, great for diabetics. Yeah. Because I, I believe, I mean, I could be getting it mixed up, uh, but I believe it's higher in glucose than it is fructose. So diabetics can handle more glucose than they can fructose. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a doctor. Right? Yeah, I'm yeah. a beekeeper. But, but the, the higher in, say, glucose, the honey is going to harden quicker. The higher in fructose, the, hard, the, the longer the honey will stay liquid. And some honey is naturally creamed to a really, really finely granulated state, which is almost like buttery. Yeah. You can't taste or feel the crystallization inside the mouth. But whereas some honeys, like bush honeys, they crystallize in this really granular and crunchy and disgusting. Like, I don't know, I hate that really. Like, yeah, 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 I just yeah. can't handle it. Yeah. So usually those honeys are warmed. The sugar crystal is destroyed or warmed to about 42 degrees, which is still classified as raw. Yeah. So you're not actually dis disrupting any of the, of the internal components of the honey, the beneficial components. And then it is... You, then you you warm it up so it's fully liquid. You dissolve all of those sugar, those crunchy sugar crystals, and then you add what is known as a creaming seed. And then you stir that honey for a couple of days, and that honey actually that seed will spread almost like a mother culture in a kombucha wow. or a um, I don't know any form of culture that yeah. you're trying to spread throughout a, a batch. So we touched on it before, but the flowers that they eat affects the flavor of the honey, and I text you from um somewhere overseas in the middle east actually and it was now is that all them honey like they have saffron honey is that from saffron flowers or they infuse the the honey i don't know saffron in particular but i do know that the the the, the kind of the tendrils on a saffron flower are very fine and there right. is saffron pollen i would say the honey that i've seen around the world uh in places like spain and central eastern europe and all through regular mainland europe is all saffron flower mixed with honey so it is a it is a fusion oh, okay. yeah so the health benefits now you said about raw honey before so if you heat it is it a bad thing for you for the properties in it so regular raw honey from your backyard uh has up to over 180 active constituents that are that are constantly at play within that honey all kinds of different bacterias and yeasts and microbiomes and organisms that are that are compiling themselves to to uh to, to create an end result which is a really diverse honey yeah so ultimately when you heat honey you start to burn and you start to diminish or deteriorate those active constituents so you need to keep it cool is better keep it cool is better we harvest we extract all of our honey we what we do is we bring our boxes in we put them in a hot room we set it between 34 and 38 degrees, we give it a four, four degree parameter. And then two days later, after we've brought that honey in, it's all nice and warm. The honeycombs are warm. We, we know that they're gonna be much easier to extract. We run them through the extraction machine and that actually gets more honey out of the honeycomb frame, but it also, it also speeds up the process and makes it a lot cleaner and easier to handle. Honey is really viscous, it's really thick. We all know the honey in the pantry, is really thick and, and really hard to manage. Could you imagine managing you know, one kilo of honey on your bench top and trying to get it into a tub to squeeze uh, up against managing five ton of honey. You know, yeah. five ton of honey, when it's that thick, you need the right pumps, you need the right sumps, you need the right elements, you need the right systems and filtration systems to get that thick honey through. So we lightly warm it, makes it a lot easier for it to settle and for us to filter and then bottle. What cool things, uh, so you supply chefs, hotels, we supply chefs and hotels with your cool products. Uh, so we've got the frames, we've got the honey itself, but the pollen, and was one more, oh, the wax was So it? propolis, yeah, beeswax oh, is one, yeah, and then yeah. propolis. Propolis yeah. is essentially the, the in-hive medicine. So what, what are the chefs doing with it? What's, what's something that you've gone in, whether it was, you know, your first one was at the Gerard's and Butchie there, is, is there anything that say Ben had done or someone's done that's just gone, man, that is awesome, I've never seen that before. Yeah, Benny Devlin, when he was working uh, on his on his little side project up here, his, his bread, his bakery, Yeah. Uh, I think it was called Beakery, so it was baking bread from spent beer grain. And, and fermenting it all naturally in wild fermentation and baking it into bread, but also doing all of these cool offshoot side products. So when Benny Devlin, maybe that was four or five years ago when he was up here, uh, just before he moved down to Cabarita, uh, to Halcyon, he, he wanted some beeswax and he yeah. made these beautiful beeswax bowls. So he blew up balloons and dipped the balloons in beeswax and then 
sat them down so they had a flat bottom. And those beeswax cups, when he popped the bowl, when he popped the balloon, all of a sudden you've got these beeswax bowls that are hardy. They can hold food. You can, they're actually edible bowls at the end of the day. He is a smart. He's chef. a smart guy. He's one of the one of the best. He's one of the best, and he created a dish that. You know, you've got this beautiful, I don't know what the dish was exactly, but in my mind, you can do all kinds of things. You've got this beautiful golden beeswax bowl. You know, you can create a reverse egg style dessert where the yolk is, you know, you can make it look like the yolk is on the outside and the, and the egg white is on the inside. Or you can do all these flavor combinations. The scent of beeswax when you're eating from a beeswax bowl is out of control. It's amazing. Yeah, so that's one. Any others? Because, you know, what about cocktails? Anyone doing anything cool with drinks? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with honey and, and beeswax and bee pollen is it's, it's, it's quite hard to, to blend them into a recipe and have them noticed. So usually people are using honeycomb, for example, as a garnish. So someone can drink their cocktail and nibble on a little bit of sweet honeycomb and get the waxy texture in their mouth and the sweet, beautiful finish of, and they drink and it all levels out. Um, you know the, the the coolest thing that I've seen being done is, is we've got we we go we have about forty to fifty different honeys every year that that we're working with. So that's a new honey every week that we're that we're working with on a small volume that we want to and have to open up to chefs, restaurants, bartenders. How do you keep on top of that? Well, it's difficult. We we have to educate the people who we're working with that the honey that you get this time is not going to be the same as the honey that you get in six weeks' time. Yeah. So when you're formulating a menu, if you're formulating a menu around a specific type of honey and we've only got 24 kilos of that honey, well, then all of that honey becomes yours. We, mm. we, we bank that honey for that customer. Yeah. Um, for example, Stokehouse, uh, Lauren uh, Eldbridge yeah. is, is her name. She's a pastry chef for the Stokehouse uh, family of restaurants. And she works with a local beekeeper down in Victoria, in, just outside of Melbourne, and also a, a myself, up, ourselves up here in Brisbane. Yeah. So we sent her down 50 samples and she tasted them all and came back with her top three. So we just parked those honeys so she can always know that her dessert is going to be consistently uh, delivered on the pass at the end of the day. So at, the, at your warehouse is Stokehouse Honey. <laughs> You're storing it exactly. there and delivering it. It's so. just the Stokehouse pale. That's yeah, it. Yeah, but you yeah. know, that's what it takes. If if the more and more we're we're moving towards people wanting something unique and to help them stand out from the rest, and that's what honey can allow you to do. Gone are the days, or going are the days of blended honey, just from the bush. That's all blended into one that you just use in cooking and teas and coffees. And <laughs> you know, when you get our honey in a ramekin next to your sourdough bread. Uh, at you know Felix Cafe in the city or Florence yeah. Cafe over yeah. in Camp Hill, you know that you're going to get something that's either really bright and citric and floral and amazing, or dark and rich and granular and funky. You know we get passion fruit, flower nectar coming through in a lot of our honeys, especially around Bowen Hills and Fortitude Valley. Over in Balmoral, we know that we're always going to get from our Balmoral site a real funky underlying tone, which actually elevates and lowers throughout the season depending on what's in flower. But we always know that we're going to get this fermented guava almost from the mangroves or you know the local urban farm that's over in morningside balmoral uh the port side is right there so bees flying 5k we don't know where they're going but they're finding something every single season in every single one of our four extractions that we can say that that is uniquely balmoral wow well that um that's certainly my next question was what's different about your honey but yeah that's that is amazing what's what's really different about our honey is that we don't extract our honey and throw it all into the same pot. We are very specific about being authentic, transparent, and and real about the product that we're serving. If you see our product on the shelf and it says it's from Newstead, there's a likelihood that that honey is, you know, that jar of honey is one of only about 40 that we were able to produce. Yeah. Because we've got one hive in Newstead on top of a, on top of a, a building and you know, we're only producing 80 or 90 kilos of honey from that hive a year, but for us it's worth it because we want to see what the, the flavour of Newstead tastes like. And that changes significantly from our Fortitude Valley honey, which is Avolo Hotel you know, in the Emporium precinct yep. in Fortitude Valley. And Fortitude Valley tastes very different to James Street, which is above Gerard's Bar. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, all of these very close apiary sites or bee locations, they all taste completely different because the bees are unique to themselves are there any laws like you can't put a beehive somewhere well 
there's no law saying that you can't put a beehive on a rooftop. So we put <laughs> lots of beehives on rooftops. And it works really well because it's yeah. out of sight and out of mind. Yeah. You know, when you've got a beehive in a backyard, you've got five neighbours all looking over going, why are there bees in my pool? And what are those bees doing in your backyard? It's just scary. <laughs> so uh, in terms of regulations, you need a minimum of 400 square metres on your block of land to house up to two beehives. If you've got 1,000 square metres, you can have up to four or five beehives. And then, you know, it kind of goes up from there incrementally. I've On, on 400 square metres, I've had... 24 beehives before in West End and that was I was running through the streets following swarms of bees in West End <laughs> and I remember this one swarm of bees moving into this tree I followed it to the front house, front door of the house that they were I could see them they're about 60 metres up in the air and they just started to gather around this pine tree and I just went oh yeah I'm not getting that back <laughs> <laughs> oh so that, you just lost the hole yeah it just went into the tree went into the hollow of the tree that became its new home so I've, I've said like you you go and like when there's bees in a bad spot at a bus stop or something you go and get the bees and absolutely take away. yeah we put them in a box we box them and then we, we come back in wait the a evening. minute wait a minute you put them in a box I think there's a little bit more than that so you walk up to this friggin' thing that's a steam stinging machine to all of us and what do you do? You probably do it in shorts because everything you do is in shorts. <laughs> you never really look like the bee guy. You do, but you just swan up there and, and attack these uh, and get these bees and put them in a box. Well, it's all about the, you know understanding that in different in different um, cycles of the in different I guess uh, in different aspects of the bee or colony cycle the bees behave differently. The bees are going to behave differently in winter than they are in summer. There's going to be more activity in summer. There's going to be more bees in summer. When they swarm, bees are actually just making sure, trying to make sure that they get to their next home safely. So a swarm essentially is the mother queen inside the hive, makes an agreement with the worker bees inside the hive and some boys, and she says, hey, all right, team, who, who's in with me? We're going. 50% of us, we're leaving. Yeah. They will have manufactured and made a new queen bee inside that hive in the weeks prior. So when the 50% leave the hive, that new oh. queen bee hatches out the next day and there's no gap in the cycle. Wow. You know, they're very detailed. Yeah. It all, bee, beekeeping is all about days. Things happen in, in, in 12 day cycles, 14 day cycles, 16 day, 21 day cycles. Um, and and they're, the one, they're the few things that we know about bees and that's what helps us read them and understand what they're doing. So a swarm of bees will go and settle 10 to 15 metres from their hive. You've got 20,000 bees in a big bundle hanging off a tree or a lampshade or a, or a, a, a sunshade or whatever it is, wherever they choose to settle, in a bush. And they're really docile. The queen's in the centre of that walking around and there's all these bees buzzing around, this big cluster of bees that are hanging from the branch. And... There's bees coming and going and you think, well, what are the bees coming and going for? This is like, they're not coming, bringing any food back, but what they're actually bringing back are messages of the, of the local environment and area about where next we can go to live. So they're coming back, the scout bees are coming back with messages of wow. prosperity. They, the bees will go and scout out cavities in tree hollows. They'll go and scout out cavities in the sides of houses, the sides of buildings are going to brick buildings and work in the cavities of the brick building but they will actually walk in there the single bee and she will she will actually map out she'll walk out the diameter and the internal uh, volume of the space and come back and say hey i've got a 25 liter volume space and it's this wide it's this deep and who else wants to come and check it she doesn't have the wheelie thing she doesn't have the wheelie thing or a laser she doesn't have a laser (laughs) she's just got six legs and determination. So, so you, so when you go and rescue someone, yeah. So, thing, so, so we, yeah, essentially, they're really docile. So we just put a, a, a plastic bin underneath them or a bucket underneath them. We always have our beehive ready to to house the bees in, and we just shake the bush, the branch into the bin. The majority of the bees fall in the bin, and they're all kind of like, "Whoa, what happened?" Yeah. They then get poured into the beehive. We close the lid. And as long as the queen's in there, all of the other worker bees will communicate to the worker bees that are coming back with messages. They will communicate through through fanning a pheromone or a smell to attract all the other bees in to say, hey, we've found a home. This is suitable. This is Surprise! I knew about this. You guys might not have known, but a little bit of a Hey, I met this guy, Jack. Yeah, he just yeah, came yeah, along. Yeah. He gave us his offer. It's a great lease. Yeah, look, we had to go quickly. It's Sorry a three by that. three. I'm not going to live in that building anymore. <laughs> Way too many people. Bus parks are every morning. Yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So, yeah, you know, the, the, oh, I don't have fear that I'm going to get stung by bees in that state, in the swarming state, because the bees are really just looking to secure themselves a new home. 
So do they get scared? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> bees actually are, bees have the, have, have, have the, size, the size of brain that lives within a bee is the size of a sesame seed. But that's um, super yet smart. They, can, they can perform these incredibly intelligent and diverse acts of flight, of, of measurement, of distance measurement, of communication. Of, oh, so they're is. super smart little creatures. So they do actually feel emotion and pain. Um, and, and that's always hard, hard to deal with when you're, you've got 50,000 bees and you do squash a couple here and there. Mm. But we think about the colony as a whole, mm. the impact of a colony as opposed to us and the impact of squashing a bee. Yeah, I killed one the other day quite accidentally. Yeah, and I, I was down on myself. I even said to Amanda this morning, yeah, I said, my wife, I said, oh my God, what have I done? You've got to admit this to me. It was like six weeks ago that it, and I accidentally, it was like, it was on me, it was in my hair. Like, yeah, and you know, that's like, the best like, thing to do. Argh. That's the best thing to do. Yeah. If it's in your shirt, if it's on your hair, just squash yeah. it. Don't try and get it out. It's going to sting you. Because if it gets out, it's going to loop back around and sting you in the forehead. It's going to be like, thanks for, for helping me out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <gasps> <laughs> So what can we do to help increase the population of honey? Well, it's a, it's, it's a really good question and it's a really common question as well. And I think the easiest way is not to rush out and buy a beehive, not to rush out and buy, you know, a whiz-bang self-tapping flow hive uh, or anything. Um, you know, it's a, little, it's a little plug for flow hive, but I'd say the flow hive is not the answer to all beekeeping issues yeah. in the world. In fact, yeah. it, it, you will, only the test of time will show whether it's actually going to benefit the industry. Um, the, the answer really is, is to, is to become more connected with what's already flowering in your local area. Start looking up. If you're going for a walk in the afternoon, get off your phone and look up. Because when we look up, we connect with what's above us and what's above us is often, you know, far more interesting and far more diverse and far more abundant than what we've ever discovered before. Listen for the humming in a tree. Try and smell the nectars in the air. Try and understand what's in flower at this time of year and what's in flower at that time of year. Become more connected. And then from there, if you want to see more bees visiting your yard, plant easy food for the bees. Not every flowering plant will produce a, you know, a, a protein or a nectar that's attractive to a bee. Uh, you need to be out there looking for bee-friendly plants that have high contents of minerals, amino acids and proteins in their pollen and high counts of carbohydrates, so high counts of nectar. If you get a nectar-producing flower that doesn't produce much pollen, that's cool as well because you're bringing the bees in. The bees yeah. are actually after the nectar, and it's a byproduct through collecting nectar from the flower that they transfer and collect pollen. Wow. So, so, flowers, so yeah, flowers look around, are, plants are cool for things that should probably you, grow in You know, area. like salvia, rosemary, lavender, hearty, easy-to-grow plants, things that grow through winter, you know, don't expect to grow a pumpkin plant or a or a zucchini a zucchini plant and have bees visit it because they're ugly flowers. That's why I've got to hand pollinate my pumpkin. Yeah, you've right. got to hand pollinate your zucchini. You've got to know what you're planting and that yeah. they are beneficial. And don't expect bees to just come to your yard. <laughs> if they've found a gum tree down the road that's producing liters and liters of nectar, they're not going to necessarily come into your backyard to kind of, you know, visit a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Yeah. You, you, you need to be... You need to be conscious of what else is in flower in your area and try and find where you can replace those flowering cycles in your yard. Because I just thought the answer was eat more honey, but it's obviously... <laughs> well, eat, eat more honey, definitely, always. Yeah. And honey is really good for us. Honey is a great medicine. It's a great healer. It's a great... Uh, it's actually... It's, it's, it's shown that eating a tablespoon of honey before bed can actually um, uh, increase your glycogen levels, which then doesn't see you waking up hungry in the morning. It doesn't see you waking up at five o'clock going to the loo. Uh, your body, when it loses fuel when you sleep, uh, wakes up. It wakes up and says, I need more fuel. I need more food. Give me something more. So all of a sudden, you're alert really early in the morning. And you're like, I made a really big meal last night. Well, you ate a really big meal at 6 p.m. and You went to bed at 10 and you've just lost four hours or three hours of glycogen, glycogen store. Before you go to bed, have a tablespoon of raw honey and that will just boost you up. Do it before you brush your teeth. It's not going to send you buzzing. Uh, honey has a different effect than sugar. It's not a sugar. It's a glucose and fructose. It's a compounded sugar um, and a diverse sugar as well. So um, that's, yeah, definitely eat more honey. Drizzle honey on toast, porridge, drizzle it on your... So you get know, it on the so menu. Drizzle it on you haven't got on the menu. Yeah. It's <laughs> a PG podcast. You podcast. are intelligent, friendly, one of the most decent blokes that I get to work with. And I do thank you for coming in. You're a 
just amazing. You've always helped us out. I ring you. I rang you just the other day, and I said, "Man, I need some honey racks." You had them here this afternoon. I know you work incredibly hard for everyone. So, thank you for that. Thank you for having all this knowledge, and thank you for today. And I know that everyone that's listened to this is going to be like, "Wow." Well, hopefully we can all walk away and have learned something. But uh, um, one thing that I'm really grateful for as well from from Suncoast uh, Suncoast side of things is is when you call me and you say, "Look, we need 12 honeycomb frames. You know, can you get them to me? We've got customers wanting them and asking for them." And, and I say, "Look, no. Like, this is the best we've got, and I'm not happy. This is going to go into honey production and not honeycomb production yeah. because for us, we need a standard, but also your customer needs a standard as well to yeah. adhere to. So we're only going to try and give you what we can." In the best in the best of times but when times are tough we're always going to try and sort out where we can find gaps um, to get you to get you our best produce so appreciate the understanding uh, because often i don't think that that communication is is also clear when it comes to a producer and purchaser relationship yeah, yeah. So, well thanks. awesome thank you for today um so what was your instagram again so people can find you b one third b double e space o n e space t-h-i-r-d or just type it all in one word be, yeah. Yeah, be one third and uh instagram's active but not active our stories are pretty good um, yeah yeah facebook's pretty good yeah, um, yeah. And I, I need a billy in my life to be honest to come yeah yeah well, yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna have billy for too much longer yeah oh, that's okay. you know we might find you a sally thank you again you're awesome such a pleasure cheers mate thanks a lot it's been a pleasure that's a wrap billy Man, how good was that? Jack is a complete legend, as you've just heard. I have learned so much today. I did not know so much about bees, and I thought I was all over it. Listen, if you want to check more out about Jack, please go to his Instagram on B13rd, and you can learn more and keep in touch and up to date with what's going on with Jack. Awesome. Thank you, Jack. Jack.